All right, if you would take your Bible and turn to the book of Titus, we're going to have a chance to look at God's Word together. We are on Sunday mornings in the process of going through the book of Titus through a series of sermons that will take us into early May, but this morning we're going to be looking at the beginning of Titus chapter 2. Because it's the first Sunday of the month, our kids stay in here with us together Uh, Just as a reminder that if you do need to step out, we have the couches and TVs out in the lobby. You're feel free to to utilize that. Kids, let me give you something that you can do during the sermon. I know you guys do a great job sitting in here and listening to God's Word. This morning, though, we're talking about what it is to have people who show us what it looks like to be a Christian. And so, kids, if your parents have some paper available and maybe you want to write a note or draw a picture for somebody in the church who shows you what it means to be a Christian, somebody who set an example for you, and you can give them that picture or that note afterward that can give you something that will connect well with the, uh, with the sermon this morning. We're looking at a passage that talks about old, old ladies drinking and gossiping, talks about whether or not young women should stay at home, talks about slavery, so nothing to see here. Nothing, nothing controversial this morning, but uh, we're talking about that. So if kids are drawing pictures, the rest of us can try to figure out what in the world is going on here in, in Titus chapter 2. What does it look like to live out this, this Christian life? We're going to read the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2 all at one time, and then we'll go back and kind of take them apart after, after we read them. So let's look at Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But as for you, Paul is speaking to Titus, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing all, but, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. This is the word of God. So I remember back to high school math class uh, and conversations that would happen between the students and, and our math teacher, and the conversation normally went like this. The math teacher would introduce some concept for the day, and the students would take it upon themselves to say, why do I need to know that? Like, what good is that? That's not ever going to help me in real life. And I remember our math teacher, a sweet lady who didn't deserve uh, all, that, all that she took, but uh, I remember her just getting so frustrated with those questions of how am I ever going to use this, 
Why do I need to know this? And she finally got so fed up, she said, the reason you need to learn this is so that you'll pass the test to get out of my class, graduate high school, and make something out of yourself. Now there's a reason to go to high school right there, that you would just pass the test to get out of my class to keep going through high school and make something out of yourself. When you learn something, when you're taught something and you're trying to figure out what's the point of this, it's a legitimate question. One of the things that we're finding in the book of Titus, and this is key to the whole book of Titus, is how does the things that I learn, and sometimes we might use the word doctrine here, but how do the things that I learn, the teachings of scripture, how do those translate into the way that I live my life? Because there was a tendency in this particular church that Paul's writing to here, in these churches, there was a tendency to say, I learn one thing, I go to church, I take in this information, but then my life never shows it. There's never any sign that I took that in that I actually learned about Jesus Christ. We have to get the flow of this passage a little bit to know what's happening. So if you go back to the beginning of chapter one, on the back of your bulletin, if you got one of those bulletins coming in, if you flip it over on the back, I've kind of laid out a progression for how the book of Titus works. And this will make a little bit more sense of what's happening this morning. But the way Titus works is there's a foundation that's put there about this is what a good, stable Christian life looks like. This is the foundation of the gospel. And then on the basis of that, Paul, who's writing this letter, he talks about how he's invested himself in, Tim, in Titus, and he sent Titus out to teach these churches. And when Titus goes out to these churches, he's given the charge to put them in order. Things are kind of chaotic, there's no structure there, so Titus goes and he brings order to the church, and he does that by establishing elders, which is another word for pastors. So he establishes pastors there, and those pastors need to be people who have solid character. You can look at their lives and you can say, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Why is that so important that they have solid character and they teach the Bible? The reason is because there are false teachers going around in this area who are teaching things other than the truth of Jesus Christ, and worse than that, their lives are showing a way of living that doesn't model what Jesus gave us. So you have people that not only is their teaching off, but worse than that, their life is off. And so you get to chapter two, and chapter two begins in verse one with this transition statement. Paul says, but as for you. So in other words, completely contrary, completely opposite to what these false teachers are doing, I'm giving you a different way to live. As for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. The word sound there in, in that passage is the word for healthy. In ancient documents that were medical documents, if you went to medical school in the ancient world, the same word that was there for healthy is the word that's used for sound. And another place you find that phrase in the New Testament is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the healthy words or the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So when we understand what's happening in the book of Titus, Paul is saying, I want your life to be ordered around the things of Jesus Christ, his teachings, his life. When you do that, you will honor Christ. That's the first point there on your notes. The first point is that you will honor Christ. When we have an ordered family, 
an ordered church, an ordered life that's built on the healthy teachings of Jesus, following after his life, we will honor Christ. You say, well, that's an extremely general point, Owen. That's not gonna help me much. Here's the reason that's important. The reason that's important is because the things that we're gonna have to address in this passage, they're not just cultural values of the first century. More than that, it's not just me promoting middle-class American lifestyle to you and trying to sell it or package it as Christianity. What Paul is laying out here for a life that is ordered and a life that's built on the teachings of Jesus is a life that's meant to honor Christ. So the things we're talking about this morning in this passage are not just to say, hey, be a good American, hey, have these old school Victorian values. It's not that. It's a life that follows the teachings of Jesus. And and hopefully you'll see why that's so important here in a couple of minutes. The second reason that Paul wants these people to have an ordered life is because it will build up those around them. It will build up the people around them. There are different groups of people that Paul mentions here in chapter 2. He mentions the older men, he mentions the younger, I mean the older women, he mentions the younger women, he mentions the younger men, and he welcomes the the slaves, the bond servants. He's dealing with these different groups of people so that as they live their lives for Christ, what happens is it impacts everybody around them. Paul is telling them your life is integrated with the people around you. As you live for Christ, it's going to encourage the people around you to live for Christ. In the book of Genesis, very beginning in the Bible, God establishes Adam and Eve, he places them in the garden, they begin to live in sin, and the first result that comes from that sin is that their relationships, their family relationships are broken. Their kids, Cain and Abel, complete chaos in that relationship. When sin breaks out in the world, the first thing that suffers are family relationships. Things break down. And you don't need me to tell you that because you live in that world every day of what it looks like when those interpersonal relationships break down and especially when it happens in the context of the household, when it happens in the context of of the family. And I pray, I pray for you this morning that if you are in a situation where your marriage is on the rocks, where you're estranged from your kids, where you have terrible relationships with your siblings, that God would bring healing and God would bring hope because when the good news of Jesus begins to break out and his kingdom begins to take hold in our lives, one of the things that happens is not immediately, not automatically, not always in the way we expect, but some of those relationships begin to be healed. Siblings begin to come back together. Children are reconciled with their parents. Marriages are rescued from the brink of destruction. God's hope breaks out as we build one another up. As we say, you know what? I want to live to honor Christ, and as I do that, I want to invest in you. I want to care for you. We're in this together. And even the church becomes that picture of stability. When your family is falling apart around you, one of the things that Scripture talks about is how we become brothers and sisters in Christ. And that church, it's kind of an old, almost cheesy, churchy phrase, but we talk about having a church family that phrase takes on a whole new meaning when your life is falling on around, around you. Um, those relationships are breaking down. All of a sudden, having a church family isn't something you put on a greeting card. It's everything for you because you need that stability. You need that foundation. You need those people who are investing in your life. And so that's the second reason Paul gives here is that we would build one another up. 
The third reason that he gives that you need to have an ordered life, an ordered family, is that it becomes a witness to the community around you. As families are healthy, as churches are healthy, as your life is healthy, you're able to share the gospel with the people around you. This shows up in three verses in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 5, it talks about how the word of God will not be dishonored. When you live in a particular way, the word of God will not be dishonored. In verse 8, it says that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. In verse 10, live a certain way so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. In other words, as Paul deals with these different groups of people in the church, he says that if you will live lives that honor Christ, if you will build one another up, if you will live an ordered life built on the teaching of Jesus, it's going to communicate the gospel to the people in the community around you. A household that is peaceful, that is stable, that is ordered, that is built on Christ, is so countercultural, is so different, that just by living in that way, you're able to show people around you there's hope, there's healing, there's love, there's redemption, there's forgiveness. All of these things that come through the kingdom of Jesus begin to be lived out. And so we sometimes think, you know what, I'm not very good about speaking to Jesus, I mean, about speaking to other people about Jesus. I talk about these things and they don't come out very good, like when the preacher tries to talk and doesn't come out very good. Uh, I'm just not very good at that. But I do love my wife and I do want to invest in my kids and I am going to be respectful of the elders that the Lord has put in my life. And as you live that life that is ordered and peaceful and stable, it's incredible how God will use that to draw people to himself. Teenagers, you guys have probably seen this happen with friends at school when their family situation is really difficult. And this may be some of your stories, but when their family situation is so difficult and they look in and they say, what's different about your family? What's, what's going on there? And you're able very simply just to say, I don't know how to explain all of it to you, but I know that it's because we're trying to follow after Jesus. We're trying to live our lives based on God's word. And let me tell you some more about that. When we live lives like this, it just automatically shares the gospel with the people around us. So let's talk about what this looks like in chapter two. There are five groups of people here that Paul deals with in chapter two. We're gonna talk about how those three things kind of play out in these verses. So, Let's start in verse 2. Verse 2, it says, The older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Question number one, who are the older men? Answer number one. Answer that for yourself. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who the older men are in here. This is actually a terminology that has less to do with a particular age than it, does to has, than it has to do with your relative age towards somebody. In other words, there's a way in which I could be the older man to somebody else in here, even though I might not be an older man just by eight number of years lived. That, that makes sense? So when you read these categories, it's not age as much as it is your age in relation to the person that's looking into your life. So my kids look up to the teenagers because they're, Teenagers, they're the older people in the church. You know, they want to see what their lives look like. So this is about relation to others, not necessarily an age group. Older men are to be temperate, 
It means sober, but more than alcohol, it just means being clear-minded, clear-headed. You're living in such a way that you're able to think clearly about the world around you. They're to be dignified. I think about the older men in the church that I grew up in and how I looked at them as men of dignity. They carried themselves in a way that was worthy of respect. You wanted your life to look like those guys. We had an older man in, in our church that, he was an older man when I was growing up, so he's definitely an older man now, but we would play pickup basketball games uh, uh, there, there at church, and you did not come across the lane when this guy was in the middle of the lane because he would just throw an elbow. Uh, but he was the most dignified man I knew, and we looked up to him except when he threw elbows in pickup basketball games when you came across the, uh, came across the lane. But you need guys like that in your life that you look up to and you say, I want my life to look like that. Sensible. This is the key word for chapter two of Titus. It's gonna show up differently in your translation. A lot of translations will say self-controlled. New American Standard gives sensible. This is the word that's repeated for these different groups that, that Paul gives here. So it's someone who's under control. And then sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Funny enough, if you substitute the word hope for the word perseverance there, which they kind of go together, you have faith, hope, and love, which is that combination that Paul uses in the New Testament a lot of times. So he's saying that older men should encapsulate all of what it means to live the Christian life. You should be able to look at that guy and say, that's what it looks like to live for Jesus. Older men, if there's a word you need to take away from this, it's the word maturity. If there's if there's a generalization in culture that you need to fight against, it's the dirty old man syndrome. If a man is living for Jesus, if a man's saying, I want to be a picture of self-control, I want to be a picture of maturity, that idea and culture of the dirty old man should be the furthest thing possible that you would be characterized at. Set an example of what it looks like to finish well. If heaven is a holy place, and you are pursuing holiness, and you are drawing closer to that point, why would you end your life living for the things of this world? Why would you spend your last days chasing after the pleasures of this world instead of showing this is what it looks like to live holy? I want my son to grow up in a place where he can look at the older men and say, that's what it looks like to live a mature Christian life. That's what it looks like to be self-controlled. Older men, maturity, and then completely kill the dirty old man idea. Number two, older women, well, actually verse three. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, instead teaching what is good. Paul does an interesting thing here. He kind of does this uh, pattern between something that's positive Something that's negative, negative, positive, and then action words, action words. It's kind of a way, a literary device where he wants to just group everything together. Your words matter and your actions matter. There's negative examples and there's positive examples. So he's talking to older women here. The idea of being reverent in their behavior is the idea that they should show what it looks like to be a priestess. They should show what it looks like to be holy. Malicious gossips. Let's talk about that word for a second. That's actually the word in the New Testament for Satan. So, I don't condone going up to an older woman and calling her Satan. So let's just lay that right there. 
That's not what I'm saying. But it's the word for Satan. It's the word for slander. Someone who uses their words in a destructive way, a malicious gossip. It's a word that's used in, in a negative way. Not enslaved to much wine, instead teaching what is good. What you find going on in the New Testament with older women is issues related to being idle. Uh, not Idle is an I-D-L-E. In other words, you've got too much time on your hands. Um, you're sitting around. And when you're sitting around, if you're not careful, you'll talk about everybody else and you'll drink too much. That's the situation that Paul is confronting here, is people who are not living with self-control, who are wasting their time and wasting their words. Older women, if you need to write a heading over these verses, it's time and words. How do I invest my time? How do I use my words? An older lady has influence and power with her words. She can speak into a situation and completely diffuse it, or she can speak into a situation and cause it to erupt into a big deal. What do you do with your words? How do you use your words? And how do you use your time? What am I investing myself in? Where, where am I giving myself? Uh, when I think about someone who is a picture of an older woman that shows us what it looks like to follow Christ, I, I think about my grandma on my mom's side. Uh, we always told her the one thing that would keep her from having a perfect crown in heaven is she loved to watch Seinfeld. Uh, that, was her, that was her one downfall, and I'm not even sure that's a downfall. That may actually be in, in the positive category for, for all I know, but she loved to watch Seinfeld, but she was a picture of maturity. She was a picture of someone who spoke into people's lives hope and love and joy and used her time. You never felt like she was misusing her time. She was investing it in the right things. And specifically, this passage says that older women are to invest in younger women are to teach younger women. What are they supposed to teach them? Verses four and five. Teach them that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Whew. All right, what's, what's going on here? The background to these verses is in chapter 1, verse 11, okay? The background to these verses is in chapter 1, verse 11. Back there in chapter 1, verse 11, it says that these false teachers, they must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that should not be taught. One of the things that the false teachers were doing in this situation is they were coming along and they were saying, marriage eh, doesn't really matter anymore if you're a really spiritual person. Your family, let them be. You've got better things to give yourself to. And so these young women in the church, these young women in the church are hearing, yeah, you know what? I could probably kind of do whatever I want to. My home, let them figure it out. My husband, don't need him anyway. I've got Jesus. I'll keep doing my own thing. Do you see how this could become destructive to families quickly? When mom disengages from home, when she says, that's not really spiritual, I've gotta go somewhere else to find something that's really spiritual. Ladies, there was a, a book put out recently by a, uh, a woman named Tish Warren called Liturgy of the Ordinary. Uh, and in this book, what she tries to do is just show how 
Those basic elements of caring for home are one of the most beautiful ways you can display what it looks like to live for Jesus. Um, and now you get to come back at me and say, Owen, are you telling me I've got to spend all my time at home and that I can't work outside the home? Well, that's one of the ways that this passage has been used over the years, but it's just not an appropriate application. And the reason is what Paul is dealing with in this passage is not vocational work. What Paul is dealing with in this passage is where you're giving your energy, where you're finding value and significance. So if a mom says, home is not valuable, my husband and kids don't really matter, I have to go find my value and significance somewhere else, that's dangerous, that's destructive. The idea of being submissive to your own husband is the idea of being his champion of saying, we're in this together, I want the very best for you, we're gonna be engaged. There was a study put out recently by the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, and one of the things that this study revealed is that one of the fastest growing segments of the population who are leaving the church are professional women. One of the fastest growing segments of the population who are leaving church are professional women. And the reason given for this was found in a LinkedIn study. I didn't know anybody actually responded to LinkedIn, that they could actually have a study. When I get an email from LinkedIn, I kind of feel like it's the Nigerian prince telling me he's gonna give me a million dollars if I replied, if I replied to the email. So I've never responded to a LinkedIn email. But uh, LinkedIn did a study, and they found out that the reason that so many women were disengaging is because they didn't have an older woman or a mentor to look at to tell them what does it look like to be a Christian woman and a professional woman at the same time. They didn't, they didn't have a picture of what that looked like, and so they were just disengaging from church because they couldn't figure out how to live this idea. Ladies, I wanna be really careful about telling you what it looks like to do this, but what I do want you to see from this text is your value of being involved at home and what you do in shaping that home and what you do in loving your children and what you do in loving your husbands, that is gospel kingdom work and it is valuable. And if you ever feel like in order to be truly significant or to be truly spiritual, I have to go somewhere else, that's where things start to fall apart. That's where things start to get dangerous. This idea of being a keeper of the home, this idea of being a worker at home, don't think of it in terms of beauty, because Paul deals with that at other places in Scripture. It's not that I have the most beautiful home. Uh, it's not the idea that I have a Pinterest home. It's the idea that my home is a place of order. It's a place of peace. It's a place of stability. It's a place where people can see the gospel in, in action. So I know that this is a controversial passage. I know there's a lot of things going on there. But to understand what's happening, you just have to read it against Titus 1.11. These false teachers are upsetting families. These young women are involved in spiritual warfare when they say, you know what, I'm gonna be my husband's champion, my home's gonna be a place of order, and I know that this is important for the kingdom of God. Next group, young men. Verse six, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible or self-controlled. I love this part of the New Testament. Okay, so watch what happened. Paul talked to the young women, and he gave them seven things to focus on. Paul talks to the young men, he says, just be self-controlled. <laughs> the ladies can handle seven, and you get one. 
Like, if you could just get this right, it would take care of all your other struggles. Uh, We'll give the ladies seven things to work on because they're capable of that. Young men, for the love of God, just be self-controlled. Have some control of it. And this also helps us not to abuse those previous verses. Helps us not to abuse those previous verses. Sometimes the reason ladies have pressed back so hard against that keeper of the home, submissive to your husband ideas, some of the reasons they press back so hard is because we've used that as a way to say, guys, go do whatever you want to, live life however you want to, spend your time however you want to. Ladies, you've got to make sure you take care of the home. That's not the New Testament idea. That's not the picture that's painted. Paul's saying, guys, you've got to show some self-control. Control with your words, control with your time, control with your money, control with your actions. Live lives that are under control of God's spirit, and your wife is set free to do those things that God is calling her to do. You're able to figure out how to do this as a family. And then he paints Titus as the example for the younger men. Verses 7 and 8, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. All right, let's move on to verses 9 and 10, the last group. So you have old men, old women, young women, young men, and then you have this group called bond servants or slaves. Urge the bond slaves to be subject to their own masters. Uh, just a second, let's stop there real fast. Notice the similarity of language here. Subject to their own masters. Same language that was used for the young women, submissive to their own husbands. In other words, there's a very strict limit put on this idea of submissiveness or this idea of authority. It's not one race submissive to another. It's not one gender submissive to another. It's very specifically in the context of that household that this language is being given. So that, that saves us from about 90% of, of our dangers right there if you see that. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now, this gets us into the waters of what do you do with the issue of slavery in the New Testament? And what do you do with the issue of slavery alongside the topic of women in in the New Testament? Over the next four or five minutes, I want to be careful not to give overly simplified answers because it's a complex discussion, okay? I understand this is hard, but I also understand this is a topic that people would love to hit you with at school and at work. You say you're a Christian, even worse, you say you're a Southern Baptist, and here you are reading a book that talks about slavery and putting down women. What do you do with that type, type of response? What do you do with that type of topic? So hear me guarding against overly simplified answers to a really complicated discussion, but, but here's a couple of things that might be, might be helpful. The first is, and you've got to be cautious on this one, but I think there's a point to be made. The first is that when it talks about bond slaves or bond servants in the New Testament, that's a different type of relationship than your chattel property slavery of modern-day America, and especially the type of human trafficking that's prominent in the 21st century. You've got a slightly different type of relationship going on there, where in ancient forms of servanthood and slavery, 
there was the promise, uh, even the likelihood that you were going to experience some level of freedom. So you're talking about two slightly different categories. Nonetheless, any form of someone owning another person is still something that understandably hits us the wrong way. So what do we do with it beyond that? The topic of women and the topic of slavery next to one another helps us work through this puzzle. Woman, man, gender categories are aspects or categories of being created in the image of God. In other words, those are categories that go back to the very beginning of Scripture. That God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female He created them. These categories of men and women are categories that go back from the very beginning of Scripture and extend to the very end of Scripture. The topic of slavery is not a category. It's not an image of God category. There's not men, women, and servants. Those are not how it works. Created in the image of God is men and women. One of the things that happened when sin came into the world is God told Adam, hey, you're going to have to work the ground a lot harder. You're going to have to put some more effort into this. And in the brokenness of humankind, people said, I'm not going to work hard. I'll get somebody else to work harder for me. And you start to become, because of the brokenness of sin, comes in this broken category of servanthood or slavery. And the trajectory, direction of scripture is that that category would become broken down that you would find God referring to his people as co-workers we're in this together slavery and servanthood is not a category that extends to the end of the new testament so male and female talking about how do you order those relationships that's something that you see from the beginning of the bible to the end of the bible the category of slavery is not something you see at the beginning, and it's not something you see at the end, but it was a reality for the people that Paul was writing to. You can make some applications from this passage to the idea of being an employee. There's some relationships there you can find. You can find some ways that it applies. But I just want to deal specifically with that issue because I know it's something that comes up. You see it in social media posts. You see it in internet articles that you probably shouldn't be reading anyway, but these type of ideas and these type of topics come up and we've got to know some way to be able to respond to those and just a complete rejection of it ever being okay to have ownership over someone or the idea that someone of a different race or someone of a different background would be less dignified less valuable somehow less in the an image of God creation so we're dealing with this passage but I want you to see that that topic of male and female it keeps going. The topic of slavery, though, is, is confined to this particular idea. Paul will even say in the New Testament, he'll even say in the New Testament to slaves, if you can get out of that relationship, get out of it. And he'll tell Christian slave owners, you need to move toward freedom for those who are, who are your servants, who are your slaves. Okay, what is that topic then? How do we use that topic to get all the way back full circle and wrap this up? Here's how we do it. We do it through the taking of the Lord's Supper. God calls his people together in order to live for him, to live lives that honor Christ. He calls us to do that with others. We do that in the context of families, and we do that in the context of a church. If you're here as a part of Emmaus, 
or you've just gathered with us as a Christian today to worship, we are here together remembering that all the boundaries that could separate us have been broken down in Christ. And so what we're about to do in a few minutes, when we take of the Lord's Supper, is we take of this together. And here's what I love. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men are going to be taking of the Lord's Supper together because we worship and serve the same Jesus. He calls us to live that out in slightly different ways. It's going to look different tomorrow morning if you're an older man or if you're a younger woman. What you do on Monday morning is going to look differently, but when we gather together as the church, we gather together under the name of Christ and never, ever lose the significance of that, what it is that we come together because of Jesus Christ. If those of you who are helping with the Lord's Supper, if you would come to the front right now or move to the tables in the back, we're gonna prepare to have a response to God's word by taking of the Lord's Supper together. Those of you that are gonna help with our closing song, if you need to come on stage and get ready for that, you can come up here. I want you to know that if you're here this morning and you have young children with you, the Lord's Supper is something that is designed to be participated in for those who are followers of Jesus. And we talk about this every time, but I just want to put it back out there again. I know it's awkward sometimes with young kids to say, you know what, this, this is not a time for you. But what it does give you the chance to do as parents and grandparents is when your kids ask you, hey, what are those people doing? It's a wide open opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. For you to tell them, hey, when those people are eating the bread, they're remembering that Jesus died for us, that he gave himself for us. When we drink that cup, we're reminding the kids, hey, Easter's coming. We're going to learn about the cross, and we're going to learn about the resurrection. You have a chance to talk to them about that. So this is a time, you don't have to be a member of Emmaus, but you do need to be a follower of Jesus Christ, because what we're doing right now is we're gathering together under his name to say, Jesus, this is what you've done in my life, and this is what you've done to bring us together as, as your people. I'm going to say a prayer for us. After I pray, we're going to begin to pass out the elements. Just take the two cups together and hold on to them, and then we'll partake of the bread and the juice in just a minute. Let me say a prayer of blessing over you, and then we're going to move into this time of worship together. Father, I pray that as we have looked at this passage of scripture uh, with some verses that have things that are, that are difficult to understand or difficult to think about how they impact our lives. God, I pray that we would be committed in a fresh way to living for you. That as we wake up tomorrow morning, different seasons in life, different responsibilities, going in different directions, but we're committed to the same purpose, and that's to honor Christ. As we honor Christ, we build up others, and as we do that, we communicate the good news of Jesus to the world around us, to the people we live with and work with and spend time around. So God, I pray that this time of worship right now with the Lord's Supper would be a reminder of that. God, for people here this morning, that this would be a fresh time of worship, that you would work in their hearts, that you would set in their hearts this deep desire to live fully for you. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.